Well, good morning, everyone. For those who are guests, my name is Vince. I'm also one of the elders here at the church, and it's my joy to bring God's word to you here this morning. We are, as Mark mentioned, we're starting a series in the Ten Commandments. So if you want to turn your Bibles, we're going to start with Exodus 20, 1 through 21. We're going to actually hear the Ten Commandments uh, read to us in just a moment. Uh, This is going to be the first of two opening messages. Sometimes we start a series and we have one opening message. Actually, there were just some background things that we want to make sure that we accomplish in this message. And then Mark's going to bring uh, a second message. And then we'll get into each of the Ten Commandments week by week. Um, In our bookstore, we have a a little supplemental guide, an aid, something to help you uh, really apply and learn and grow uh, in the knowledge of the Ten Commandments. It's a book by Kevin DeYoung called The Ten Commandments what they mean, why they matter, and why we should obey them. And I have found this personally just very helpful. Uh, So it's a wonderful resource. Uh, It's at a big discount in the bookstore. It's only $6. It's wonderful for personal use. Uh, You can use it in the discipleship of others. You can also use it in training up your kids. Uh, It's a wonderful tool, and it's written in a very accessible way. And the reality is the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments have always been used by the church in a foundational way to help make and equip growing disciples. Uh, In the Ten Commandments, uh, we're going to see just wonderful ways that God reveals himself to us. But one of the interesting things in this book that really caught my attention in the introduction was Kevin DeYoung uh, cited an example uh, that happened a few years ago where uh, a high-ranking business executive and a chaplain from a very well-known university who's a humanist uh, decided to have a contest, and they wanted to come up with the Ten non-commandments. And so they crowdsourced all these different ideas and thoughts. They paid money to the people who had the best ideas. But I thought as we enter into our series on the Ten Commandments, I thought it'd be helpful to find out what the world around us thinks about the Ten non-commandments. So let me read them to you and they'll be up on the screen. First one. Oh, and by the way, these aren't all crazy. It's not like everybody just you know, went nuts on this thing. Some of them actually make a lot of sense. But if you look carefully, some of them are inconsistent or maybe even contradictory. Um, but you see for yourself. First, number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control of their body. Here's an interesting one. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Treat others as you would want them to treat you. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. And here's a fascinating one. There is no one right way to live. And then number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Contradictions, maybe. These non-commandments, well, in effect, they are commands. This is the way the world lives. And, And you know that that's how they live because just try breaking one of those. Try telling somebody that there's a right way to live. And I assure you that they're going to feel like you're stepping on their toes. Hey, we live in a pluralistic society. You can make up what's right for you. I make up what's right for me. That's the world that we live in. And I think this list is 
a pretty good and accurate description of the world that we're engaging with the truth that comes from God's word. It's sobering, isn't it? This is how people think. And quite honestly, before Christ came into my life, that's how I thought. These were my ten non-commandments or ten commandments, so to speak. Although I probably would have added in, like, make yourself as happy as you can. Don't worry about other people. I mean, I could have added to my list of commandments uh, that I lived by. But here's the thing. Each and every one of us lives with a moral code in mind. You might not have it written down. You might not be able to just think it all the way through in a moment's notice. But the reality is everybody has a way that they determine what is right and what is wrong. But unfortunately, without God and his word informing how we think about these things, our moral code ends up being sort of a patchwork quilt. And yet it doesn't all get sewn together properly. It's kind of odd and it doesn't look good. Because our moral code is more often situationally based. We often think about our morals based on what's best for me in the moment. Uh, Often they're self-serving. And they can be sometimes just a matter of convenience. I'll just do what what I think is right right now, but I don't really tie it into something that's bigger. Oftentimes our moral code is really inconsistent and it leads to a lot of confusion in the way that we live our lives we don't know how to make right and wrong decisions but morality an understanding of right and wrong it matters to god how we live matters to god how we relate to him matters to god and so we should not be careless about what we believe about right and wrong god gives the ten commandments as a reflection of himself. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But these Ten Commandments, they reflect the character and nature of God himself. And they also provide us with a way to live. And so I want us to be thinking about some questions as we go through this message today and as we engage in this series. So here's one. Do the Ten Commandments apply today? Should we keep them? And here's one. How does Jesus transform our understanding of the Ten Commandments? So we're going to now have Jack Kaler, who's going to come and read to us Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For at six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off. They said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Thank you, Jack. Let's pray. Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, this word that is living and active. It speaks to our hearts. And we pray that today as we launch this series in the Ten Commandments, Father, we just pray that you would help us, that you would send your spirit to open our eyes and unstop our ears so that we can hear truly from your word what you want us to hear. And I just pray that you would bless us and bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the main point that I want to talk about in the message today is that because Jesus is the embodiment of the Ten Commandments. Obeying them is the right way to live. Let me say that again. Because Jesus is the embodiment of the Ten Commandments, and I'll explain what that means in a little bit, obeying them is the right way to live. And I just have two points here this morning. The first point is the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's nature. It's who He actually is. You see, God reveals Himself in nature, The heavens declare the glory of God, but God also reveals himself through his word. And he doesn't just say, look, here I am and, you know, things like that. No, he describes who he is. And and even in the giving of the law and in the giving of the Ten Commandments, he's describing who he is. The Ten Commandments in the Bible are given twice. This is the first episode. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt. Moses had led them out. They crossed through the sea. And now for about seven, maybe eight weeks, they were wandering around and they came to the mountain. But it wasn't just any mountain. You see, this mountain was the same mountain where God had spoken to Moses. It's the scene where the burning bush took place. It was a holy place because God was dwelling with man. And when when Moses first encountered God, he was shielding himself. He's like, this is bad. This is this is going to be really difficult because being in the presence of God was overwhelming. And when God spoke to Moses and gave him the charge to go and deliver the people out of the land of Egypt, he said, after you come out, I want you to come back to this mountain so the people can serve me. So this account comes here in Exodus. Then, uh, as the story goes, for 40 years, the Israelites wandered in the desert and that generation passed away. And in Deuteronomy, you get the Ten Commandments said to that generation. So we get it twice. There are a few little discrepancies, and we'll talk about that through the series. But the Ten Commandments 
are really vital. They're important. They were God's instruction to his chosen people, to his treasured possession. And he was telling them not only how to live, but he was revealing himself to them. And how does he do that? Well, first, the Lord presents himself in majesty. And you might say, well, I don't know. I didn't see a lot of majesty in Exodus 20. And that's because we didn't read Exodus 19. We get a little bit of a whiff of it if you look at chapter 20, verses 18. And it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. In other words, God was on the scene. God was not on the scene saying, hey, you know, I just have a little little seminar, get everybody into the conference room. I want to do a little PowerPoint presentation. No, God shows up on the scene and it's magnificent. And he shows up on the scene and it's in majesty. There is God and there is no one like him. No one is like our God. And when he reveals himself, it is amazing. It is spectacular and it is majestic. And that is what's going on in chapter 19. The situation was, so Moses brings these people in obedience to God to this mountain where he had met with God. And he goes up and down the mountain. And if you read through the verses, sometimes it can be a little bit hard to figure out. Is he going up? Is he going down? But several times he goes up and down the mountain. And on one of the trips, God speaks to Moses. And he tells him, he says, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And they also believe you forever. And so what was going to happen is Moses was going to go up onto the mountain and talk with God. But God wanted all the people to gather around at the foot of the mountain so that they could hear God speaking to Moses. A couple things are going on there. He's clearly setting out Moses to be their mediator. Okay, so that's one part of it. But the other part of this was. God wanted to make it very clear to all of his chosen people, all of his treasured possession, that he is the God who reveals himself. He's real. See, it'd be one thing if Moses just kept saying, hey, I talked to this guy, God, and he told me to tell you this. And if that went over and over, you'd be like, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. But no, God says, I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that when you speak for me, I'm behind what you say. And so he reveals himself. In majesty. And there's a warning. Three times in chapter 19, these people are told, do not let them go up onto the mountain or they will die. Why? Because there are stipulations of being in the presence of a holy God. And he's delineating what those boundaries are. God is revealing himself in such a way that he can tell them how close they can come. And so the response, well... It was was amazing. They started trembling as we saw. But what we see here is the presence of God. Have you ever been outside in a thunderstorm? Like it's kind of nice when it's raining a little bit. And, you know, when you're a kid, you go out and play in the gutter and you do all that kind of stuff. But the minute it starts to lightning, what happens? Your mom or dad yell at you and tell you to get inside. Why? Because lightning is dangerous. Have you ever seen a tree get hit by lightning? Have you ever seen the devastation of what happens when lightning strikes? So imagine you're one of the Israelites. Okay, God calls you out of Egypt. You plunder the Egyptians. You, you go to the Red Sea and, and God protects you and delivers you. And then you got seven or eight weeks and he brings you to this mountain and he's providing everything that you need. 
And all of a sudden you're standing at the foot of this mountain. And what we see in the text is thunder, lightning, fire. The entire mountain was filled with smoke. Can you get a visual of that? You'd be like standing at the foot of a volcano in the midst of a thunderstorm. And even that doesn't do justice to what's really going on. Because then there were these loud trumpet sounds that got louder and louder and louder as the presence of God descended on the mountain. You see, context is important. When we understand the Ten Commandments, we have to understand who gives the Ten Commandments. And so the majesty of God is being revealed. And the people, well, they were, they were having a hard time because they were experiencing some of the glory of God. And as we went through our Advent series in December, seeing God's glory, Mark gave a definition of glory. He says, the glory of God is the visible manifestation of his majesty in acts of power. I think Exodus 19 qualifies as one of those moments. Okay? God is manifesting himself in acts of power. Isaiah 40, verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, God wants to reveal himself, but he wants them to get a true and good understanding of who he is. And so these people trembled. It's just like when Isaiah went into the throne room of God. What's the scene? He just falls out flat. How can I be in the presence of a holy God? His glory is weighty. His glory is majestic. And here's why I think this is important. How we think about who God is really affects how we respond to God's commands. You see, if I have a low view of God, and I don't think he's all that serious or all that important or all that powerful, chances are I'm probably not going to be all that inclined to necessarily do all that he says. But if I am absolutely and utterly convinced that this God is majestic and holy and powerful and almighty and there's nothing like him, and he gives me a command, well, I think I'm far more likely to, to heed those commands as well. And so the Lord presents himself in majesty, and then he speaks with authority. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. He says, And God spoke all these words. So he's a speaking God. He doesn't just declare himself in this big theophany, this big cloud of smoke and fire and lightning and thunder. No, he speaks. He speaks to his people. He speaks words that they can understand. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what's happening here, from a literary standpoint, Moses is just borrowing a format that everybody around them would have understood. It's sort of like, uh, how many of you all have ever bought a house or seen a house contract? Raise your hand. Okay, so it's just like if, if he presented something in a literary context that followed along like a sales contract for a house. What's at the very top of the first page? Who the parties are, right? Next thing in the uh, section is, okay, what's actually going to happen? What's going to transact? Next part, what are the stipulations in the contract? And at the very end of it, you ratify it, right? You sign the contract so that there's an agreement of both parties. Well, the form that Moses was using was a form of a contract, but it wasn't just a contract between equals. This was a contract between kings and their subjects. 
Kings would come and overrun certain things and they would have dominion. But they had to make sure that everybody understood, hey, now that I'm in charge, here's what it needs to look like with me in charge. And so I'll walk you through, because we're going to see this in this opening section here, what this treaty and what this contract really looks like. When he says, I am the Lord, and it's L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bibles, that references the, the, the real name of God. This is the name that came out when Moses met with God in chapter 3, and he says, I am who I am. This is Yahweh. He's, he's the Lord. And there's no one like him. You know, it's interesting that God doesn't call himself, I'm the God of the sun or I'm the God of the, the lightning. He doesn't call himself after anything that he's created. He just is. He's God and there is no one like him. And so he says, I am the Lord. I am the one true God. There's me and then there's everything else. And so he establishes who he is in the contract, in the covenant. And then he says, I am the Lord, your God. And so he establishes their role in this treaty. I'm the Lord, you're not. Okay? I'm the Lord, you're God. I'm the Lord, you're the subjects. And so he establishes that. And then he explains a little bit of the history of how we got here. He reminds the people of what he has done for them. It says he brought them, he brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how he showed that he was deserving to be the king. Mark will talk more about this next week. So God presents himself in majesty. And then God speaks with authority and he establishes how this relationship is actually going to work out. And then the Ten Commandments come in verses 3 through 17. He expresses his will. In the treaty, this would have been the stipulations. This is what it's going to look like for you to know me. It's required of the people, the subjects to the king. And the central command of any of these treaties was always, you can't have anybody else that you have allegiance to. And if you read through the Bible, you find out that this happened with the Israelites all the time. They always got in trouble because they were flirting with the Assyrians and say, hey, can you come and help us? Or they were flirting with the Egyptians and say, hey, could you come and rescue us? And every time that happens, God punishes them and says, listen, you are getting this all wrong. Whenever you are in trouble, you exclusively come to me. I am your king. People didn't live that way, did they? So the first four commands, and this is a really important part, And a fundamental part of understanding the Ten Commandments. The first four commands are primarily about how we relate to God. Okay? And so when you look at those commands, you shall have no other gods. So an exclusive relationship with Him. No carved images. There's nothing that you can make that would ever represent Him accurately. So He doesn't want you to even mess with that. It'll just distract you. Don't take His name in vain. In other words, show Him respect. Honor Him. Honor the King. And then remember the Sabbath. Remember that everything that you have comes from Him. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. And so the first four commandments are about how we relate to God. And then the second table of the commandments, that's sometimes what people call them, the table of the law, five through ten, that's how we relate to others. And so what do we see? How parents and children relate to each other. And then there are relational aspects here. No murder. 
No adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. In our series, we'll cover each one of these separately. But here's the point. As God expresses his will, he's commanding behavior that pleases him. And he's forbidding what offends him. He's making it very clear. If I'm your king, this is how you will live with me. I've got the authority to do it. I've got the power to do it because I am the king. But what's really key here also is that these, these commands reflect the character of God. You see, when God speaks, he's not just giving a rule book of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that. He's saying, in essence, if you look at, if you look at this closely, you'll understand, I'm just reflecting myself through these commands. I'm showing you who I am and what I'm like. And then the Lord expects obedience. He gave these commands to be obeyed. These weren't optional for the people. If you look back at chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and I'll have it up on the screen. As, as the Lord was speaking, he said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Verses that Matt was referencing in First Peter. He wants them to obey his voice and to keep his covenant. In these treaties, and if you read through the rest of the New, uh, Old Testament, you'll see that these treaties also came along with blessings and curses. If you obeyed the king, there were certain rights and blessings that you were going to get. But if you obeyed him, there were certain curses that would come your way. And then these treaties, they were witnessed. And instead of signing them, that's how we end up with the Ten Commandments written on the tablets. God wanted it to be memorialized. One copy was for him and one copy was for the people. But as we see in God's word, and as we see the story of the Israelites, the problem is our sin, isn't it? Even though God reveals himself, and he shows himself to be great and mighty, and he speaks with authority, there's something that dwells within each of our hearts that says, no, I don't, I don't think so. Not for me. I don't think I'm going to keep this. You see, we can't obey God's laws on our own. Adam and Eve found that out. The Israelites certainly demonstrate that. And here's something interesting. When God gives these laws, they weren't ever meant to be prison bars, but guidance for living an abundant life. I'll give you an example. You know, when you have a child, you say, hey, child, don't put the knife in the electric socket. Okay? That's a command. Now, is that... Is that because you don't love the child or is that because you do love the child? But so often our understanding of God's commands are that there are these rules that are going to keep us from being happy. When God says, no, the way that you think you're going to be happy is actually going to make you miserable. But if you'll submit yourself to me, I will make you happy if you will obey my commands and live with me. And so it's the upside down kingdom. But our rebellion... Our desire to want to make our own laws and to live like kings, well, we're not very good subjects, are they? Are we? It's sort of like uh, you know, when you're telling your kids you've got people coming over and you tell the kids to be in a room and they're young and they've got crayons. You can say, you know, you can watch a video, you can play with the crayons, you can do stuff. 
And all of a sudden, you, you know, leave for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you come back. And all of a sudden, there's just anarchy. It's just like craziness all over the place. People are coloring on the walls and spilling stuff all over the carpets and taking out all the games from the closet. And it's just chaos, right? Spiritually, each and every one of us is just like those little kids in that room. We look at the world around us, and instead of listening to God, we decide we're going to play by our own rules. And we make a mess of things. But God saw this problem. He saw that on our own, we were never going to be able to live in accordance with these commands because of this sin that dwells within each of us. And so Jesus becomes the embodiment of the Ten Commandments. An embodiment means he personifies them. He takes them onto himself. He becomes them, basically. God promised that his covenant love would triumph. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people to be their God and for them to be his people. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so God's law that was revealed in words is now embodied in Christ. And so the second point today is just that the Ten Commandments are affirmed by Jesus. Because a lot of people wonder, hey, in the New Testament, like, do I need the Ten Commandments anymore? And, you know, doesn't, doesn't Jesus just, you know, surpass all that? And it's just me and Jesus? Well, in one sense, it is about Jesus. But I want us to understand what Jesus says about the law himself. You see, they are affirmed by Jesus. The law pointed to what was to come. The personification of God himself, the perfect son, the exact imprint of his nature, the image of God revealed in the flesh. And Jesus does this by perfectly fulfilling the law and the commands of God. And he not only kept them perfectly for us, but he also transforms our understanding of the law. And let me show you a few ways how. First, Jesus perfectly obeyed the commands of God. And if you want more on this, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 or beginning in there. Read the Sermon on the Mount and look at verse 17. It's up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking at the sermon. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's talking about all the laws, which would have included the Ten Commandments. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill the law. In other words, he came to be the one who would perfectly obey God's rules and God's commands and in so doing then reflect who God is in a perfect way. Fulfillment means complete obedience. Not just in actions, but in thoughts, in words, in attitudes of the heart. Everything Jesus did was to please the Father and bring him glory. And Christ perfectly obeyed the law. And he displayed its true meaning and depth. If you want to know what the law of God looks like, you look to Jesus, who perfectly kept it. Second, Jesus exposes the heart of the commands of God. You know, one of the things that tripped up the Israelites a lot was they were always looking to keep to the letter of the law. But they oftentimes didn't understand the heart behind the law. 
And so in the sermon, continuing on in chapter 5 in, in Matthew's gospel in verses 21, 27, 43, Jesus explains how they're to understand the law. So he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But then he goes on to say, and I don't mean just killing somebody. I'm talking about getting angry at them, insulting them, calling a brother a fool. See, he's now speaking to laws that deal with our hearts, not just our outward actions. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And then he talks about lustful intents in our hearts. He tells us, hey, you've heard, love your enemy. I mean, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He goes, no, no, no. You guys don't get this right. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Not only does Jesus embody the Ten Commandments, but he actually reveals them in such a way that says, it's even bigger than you think. It's more majestic. It's not just a formalistic way of trying to live as a do-good kind of person. No, it's requiring complete and utter transformation of the heart. Why? Because the heart is the wellspring of life. And if you don't get to the heart of the problem, your heart and my heart, then you'll never be able to live the way that God wants you to live. And so Jesus was helping them understand that. In bringing the new covenant, he says, I'm going to write the law in your hearts. Right? That's what Jesus was getting as he fulfills this new covenant promise. He's helping them understand that being a religious person, being somebody who follows Jesus is not just about rule keeping. It's about having the laws of God written on their hearts. And in effect, as we see later on, as Jesus died on a cross and rose again and then sends his spirit, we realize that to keep these Ten Commandments, we need to have the abiding spirit of Christ in our hearts. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And what that does is it creates an utter dependence on God to live God's way. You can't just have God over here and say, you know what? I'll make up my own rules for how I'm going to relate to God. No, he says, I'm God and there's no other. And I want you to obey me with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. But we look upon that and we say, I can't do that. And God says, exactly. But I can do it for you. It won't be based on your works, but it will be based on the work of my son, Jesus Christ, who I sent to perfectly obey me and to bear my wrath to receive the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you, by his work, could become my treasured possession. Friends, that is good news. This is why we need to know and then be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because we live in a world that is morally confused, hopeless, despondent, despairing. You read any statistics about mental health and things that are going on in the world around us right now, people are sad desperate, lonely, and many times it's because they don't know Jesus Christ and the hope that can be found in Him, the hope of eternal life, the hope of new life. Jesus embodied these commands, didn't He? And that's the third point here in this section. Jesus embodies the commands of God. Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked about the law, He said this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law and he said to him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets 
So by Jewish count, there were about 613 laws in the Old Testament. Ten Commandments boils it down to about ten. And then Jesus sort of summarizes it in two parts, which is what we were just talking about earlier. First four are about God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Five through ten, love your neighbor as yourself. It's how we relate to others. So Jesus is just talking in language that they all would have understood. But look at how Jesus embodied this. How did Jesus display love for the Father? Well, he was willing to receive the Father's wrath on our behalf in order to carry out the Father's plan of redemption. Now that's obedience. And how did he display love for his neighbor? Well, he gave up his life for not only his neighbors. You see, we were his enemies. And that's what he gave his life up for. See, it's at the cross of Jesus Christ that we see the perfect obedience of Christ on display, recognizing that Jesus Christ not only fulfills the law, but he embodies the law through perfect obedience to the Father. And he's the model for how we are to understand and obey the law. And Jesus expects his disciples to know and teach and obey the commandments. Very familiar verses, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then look what comes next. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, yes, friends, we are to keep the laws of God. The laws that God gives to us that are moral laws, we are to keep those things because they personify who God is. But they also give us direction for how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. This is why our series title is A Blueprint for Life. This is how we live our lives before the face of God. So in conclusion, what do we see about these Ten Commandments? Well, my main point when I started was because Jesus is the embodiment of the Ten Commandments, obeying them is the right way to live. The pattern that we've seen here is that God reveals himself not only in power and majesty through the heavens and the smoke and the fire, but God declares who he is through his words as well. And we see those in his commands. But then Jesus takes these commands upon himself and he says, I've come to fulfill these, not to abolish them. So then that leaves us at a crossroads. How are you and I going to keep the Ten Commandments? I think I've already been making the case that you're not going to do it on your own. You know, we, we come to a situation like this, and especially if we haven't come to faith in Christ yet, and, you know, our self-perception can be, you know, I'm good. I'm generally a good person. You know, I'm not as bad as other people. But the fallacy in thinking that way is we miss how holy God is. This holy, majestic God makes a claim on our lives that says, you will be my people. And if you refuse that, then you won't be my people. Or sometimes we just say, you know, I don't believe in God at all. And I would encourage you, just go out and look around and see the beauty and majesty of what God has created. And it will speak to you that God is real. But God also wants to be known. And if we live life without God, we will live our lives with moral confusion. 
sometimes, and this is a little bit more of a tricky one, especially if you've been raised in a church or been in a church community, we like to pick and choose which commandments we, we want to keep. Some of them are pretty obvious. You know, we, we like this, but not like that. And, and that's what gets us into trouble because when we only obey partially, it really means we don't obey at all. It basically just says, God, I'll tolerate you, but I still want to be the king over these other areas of my life. And God doesn't want us to have any other gods in our lives, including ourselves. And some people, they try really hard. And they just give up after a while. And they say, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. And actually, I think that's probably the best place you can be. Because when you get to that point of realizing that these commands... Not only the external requirements of the law, but the inward requirements of the law. How to love our enemies. How to be kind to those who are unkind to us. How to lay our lives down for others. When we realize, wow, I'm never going to make it. That's exactly the spot where you can realize that God knows that about you. And God made a way for that problem to be resolved. And that's for you to put your faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Edwin preached on last week. And a wonderful message for us. So Christians, these Ten Commandments are for us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And on our own, we can't keep these commandments. But with the help of the Spirit, we can. We can know and love and obey Jesus because God has now given us an ability to. In John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, so Jesus speaks a lot about these things. And if you're not a Christian, not a believer here today, I want to encourage you to ponder what we've talked about today from God's Word. Think about how you think about God and His commands and whether or not you're keeping them or keeping them perfectly as He requires. And if you get to that point where you realize, yeah, I just can't do that, but I want to, well, I just want to encourage you, the next steps are fairly straightforward. It's coming before this holy God and surrendering ourselves to Him. It's saying, God, I recognize I can't do this on my own. I can only do this through what you provide for me, and that's your Son, Jesus Christ. And we repent, and we turn from our own way, turn from our sins and our disobedience, and we trust in Jesus Christ, who kept these commandments perfectly for us. And if we are found in Him, His righteousness will be credited to us as well. And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who will open your hearts and minds to be able to follow Jesus. And then with the Spirit's help, grow and continue to grow as a disciple who knows, loves, and obeys Jesus and encourages others to do the same. So why don't we stand? I'm going to have the band come and we're going to close our time here in a song. But let me pray as they're coming up. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for this word that is living and active. And we thank you that your word and these Ten Commandments in particular reveal to us not only who you are, but also who your son Jesus is. Because he came and embodied the law for us. He is the perfect son. And we want to give him all glory and praise and honor that is due him. And if we do love him, we want to keep his commands. But for that to happen, we need your help. And so I ask that you would send your spirit 
to quicken our hearts and minds to have a passionate desire to love your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.